This Sunday, today, is our annual pulpit exchange. We're very blessed here at ECF to have sister churches who are like-minded and uh, treasure the word and, and understand how important it is for that to be taught well. So today, Pastor Reed is at uh, Grace Baptist Church in Dansville, and uh, the pastor there, Dave Theobald, is in Hornell, and Pastor Nathan Rubel is with us this morning from Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Hornell. And it's been a delight to get to know Nathan over the years, and we're delighted to welcome back here to the ECF pulpit. to tell me if this is on. Sounds like it is. Okay. Well, it's good to be here today. And I, as Ed was saying, I've uh, known uh, Pastor Reed and the elders for some years now. We have quite a relationship and uh, it has been a great blessing to me. I thank the Lord uh, for just the, the influence they've had on me, helping me in my ministry. And uh, it is a great privilege to be able to uh, know, uh, especially the elders and, and the few of you that I do know, uh, I, t- I don't take it lightly to be uh, invited to speak at this pulpit, and uh, I hope and pray that we have come together today to learn something from God's Word. Well, as you see, my uh, text is going to be uh, primarily out of 2 Corinthians 12, but we're going to look also at chapter 11. But I want to give you a little overview of 2 Corinthians because I believe the message today is basically the point, the, one of Paul's main points in the whole book. So. Uh, it's good to know the context and for that reason, if, if for, no, for no other reason. Uh, we tend to emphasize 1 Corinthians, at least in my own mind in, in growing up. 1 Corinthians was always the, the book that you thought of mostly when it came to First and Second Corinthians. It's got so many great things in there. We've just gone through that over the last several years and, and just uh, it's so good. But as I've gotten into 2 Corinthians, I've come to see there's, that it's, uh, it's, you can't really say it's second place because uh, some of the important lessons that we learn here that are very important, I believe, for us to be faithful Christians. And I want to share what I believe to be anyway, at least in my understanding of the book, perhaps uh, the main lesson. And I think as we get to chapters 10 through 12, Paul starts to sum up this very idea. And uh, I hope I can relate that to you today. <clears throat> the overall context of 2 Corinthians is that Paul is defending himself against the so-called super apostles, as you read there in verse uh, 11. Uh, and, and one has to keep this in mind much of the time to be, able to, to be able to grasp the main points of the book. And the point I want to make today is precisely the main point, I think, that he writes the book. And, and as he, of course, we know that 2 Corinthians is, a, is basically about him defending his apostleship to these uh, false prophets, as he also calls them. Uh, who are saying that Paul isn't qualified, and for various reasons that we'll discuss, uh, he shouldn't be listened to, we are the true apostles. And so he's making a point. In fact, we read about in our text, as he just read a moment ago, this boasting. And Paul is is saying, you guys are telling me for these reasons I'm wrong, and you're comparing me to you. And uh, he says, well, let me boast, let me compare myself and my ministry to you and and, in doing that I think he proves that he is a true apostle and they are not and and so in the second Corinthians 12 verse 9 in particular I believe verses 9 and 10 are really the uh the crux of the book and certainly sum up the book in so many ways he says here but he said to me 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. And that's what he's been doing throughout the entire book. If you start to read this book, you, you, you soon see that Paul, is talk, is, as, as he defends himself, puts forth his weaknesses throughout this book, which is interesting because they're trying to compare their themselves to Paul, and Paul keeps pointing to his weaknesses, to the very things that they say don't matter or are bad in some way. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so I think this verse quite uh, sums up very well, uh, and it's quoted a lot. We, we all know this verse, right? You know, you, maybe as he was reading this, you thought, well, you know, we've heard this verse, the, this text many times, and what is he, he going to say new about it? Well, I doubt I'm going to say anything new, but I hope that I'm going to say something that is practical and helpful and gives glory to the, to the Lord. Uh, but we know it quite well, but I think a lot of Christians, and, and myself included, subconsciously do everything they can to avoid the things that it's talking about, to avoid suffering, to avoid trials. Certainly to avoid weaknesses. And yet Paul here says that I will glory in these things. Uh, and so we want, I want to try to explain, I think, what he's saying. And I think we certainly don't, want, don't like to define weaknesses and trials and, and these things as blessings, right? You see someone who's uh, got a new job or maybe making some money, uh, doing real well physically... And our first thought is, my, the Lord has blessed them. Well, you know, and it, it might, maybe it is a blessing. Many times it is. Sometimes it can be a, a, a snare. It can be a temptation that leads to all sorts of unpleasant things. But we tend to think of the good things as blessings. And, and Paul, I think, is saying in this book that, you know, it's not really the good things. It's the weak things. It's the difficult things. It's the sufferings that are blessings, too. So we have to be very careful about how we... uh, interpret and understand or define blessings. And so the super apostles attacked Paul on several fronts, such as he was a weak speaker. We'll see that in a moment. He wasn't a a gifted speaker. Uh, You know, we tend to think that he was, and in some ways he was very powerful because he knew God's word and he had the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord used his speaking. That's not the issue. But he wasn't evidently uh, one who captivated audiences he wasn't a great orator. Uh, they would say he didn't have the right credentials. He evidently wasn't very pleasant to look at. And uh, we'll talk again a little bit about that. It probably had an, an eye ailment that uh, made him just, you know, people look at him and, you know, well, you know, kind of felt uncomfortable. You know, you ever seen somebody like that? And they said he was wrong doctrinally. So all, all these different things that they bring up. Uh, we see this. In 2 Corinthians, back in chapter 10, in verse 10, he says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. So you see kind of the idea there that uh, they, were, they were using really some superficial things in some cases to try to say that Paul really isn't called of God. He's really not an apostle. You need to listen to us, not him. And it seems, again, we're not going to have time to see a lot of this, but that their main proof was that Paul suffered too much. Certainly, he wasn't in God's favor because he didn't have God's blessings, because 
we define blessings as goodies, as the good things that happened to us. And, and Paul uh, didn't have the goodies. He, he suffered. He was a man who was, he was an outcast of society and much of society. He was looked down upon. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He was stoned. All these things. And I said, look, you know, how could he possibly be uh, serving the Lord and in God's will? And so while he alludes to all this in the first nine chapters, uh, he especially gets to it in chapters 10, I think, in 12, through 12, where he drives his point home when it comes to the differences in his ministry as compared to the false prophets and their ministry. And to get a sense of what I'm saying here, let's read ch- in ver- chapter 11, verses 5 through 9, and I think we'll see this. In chapter 11, ver- starting in verse 5, it says... Indeed, I have considered that I am not in in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. He he was very careful to to say in credentials he was not inferior because he was called by Jesus himself. And and certainly not in knowledge. He understood God's word. I mean, so he said, I'm not going to give you that because that's important. But he says, those things aside... Yeah, I'm, I'm unskilled in knowledge, in, in speaking, excuse me. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. He, he doesn't, he's not tried to hide that. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and, as, and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need so that I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. So what they were saying was, look at Paul, he's poor, he can't speak well, and he's poor, he doesn't wear good clothes, he, he's, he's just not doing so well. And Paul says, well, look, I'm like that because I, I love you, because I didn't want to be a burden to you. So, so he says, yeah, yeah, I don't have a lot of money. But he says, think about the reason that I am like that, and that they're fleecing you, they're, they're exalting themselves in, you, with, in your church and with you, fleecing you to their own advantage. So he says, stop and think about this. Yeah, the comparison is right, but you don't, their, their conclusion is wrong. So here we see their dismissal of him because he was not as a good orator uh, and he was relatively poor compared to them. He didn't take support from the churches that he was active in. And so we add to this the fact that he suffered. And we know that Paul suffered a lot. He was constantly mocked, beaten, rejected, thrown out of communities. And he was also, as we'll see, look down in verse 26, for instance. No, verse 25, too. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from falsehood false brothers so he doesn't run for those comparisons he says yeah i have a rough time of it but he he says i'm going to boast in those things the things that show my weakness so it's interesting that he he embraces these comparisons and goes in the in an opposite direction and so you know you know in other words 
Paul's the kind of guy that when the floods and tornadoes and drought came upon a community, it seemed like he always got hit with it. You know, he was always the one who was suffering. He, he wasn't the one who seemed to escape these dangers. And so, you know, maybe imagine if a visiting preacher shows up one Sunday morning in a cheap, ill-fitting uh, some clothes. And, uh, you know, maybe he's got some bruises on his face or some scars where he's been mistreated uh, by many people in places that he's visit. And perhaps, you know, you, you turn on the, the TV before uh, the uh, message, before you, the service, and uh, he's in the news. And he's spouting off a lot of politically incorrect things that, that have the, the society all riled up against him. And he's, he's belittled, he's made fun of. Not all that, we see, kind of see that, that kind of stuff happening today, do we not? And all of a sudden he shows up at your church and uh, he's the odd man out. He's not the big uh, name visiting speaker. Just maybe someone outside picking him. That they don't want him to even speak. This is kind of what Paul's all about. And they're using these, these false apostles are using this to try to discredit him. Then on top of that, he's not a very dynamic t- preacher. So he gets up here and he's pretty monotone. And pretty soon, you know, your, eyes, your, your mind starts to wander. And, and you're not, he's not very impressive outwardly. Could God have really called him to public ministry? Well, see, the super apostles are basically saying, look, we must be true teachers because look how God has blessed us and look how this man is struggling. He doesn't have very much. Can he be blessed of God? We have our act together, but his life's a mess. And here in chapters 10 and 11, he makes it clear that he doesn't want to start comparing himself to others. He says that it's, it's a vain thing to sit, to sit there and make these comparisons. But he says, I'm going to have to do it for a while. In fact, look at chapter 10 and verse 12. We see this where he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are committing themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. He says, this is a stupid, and, and he said, we saw that in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting even though there's nothing to gain by it. He says, well, why are you doing it then? Well, he says, it's, it's stupid, it's silly, it's ungodly, but because you're attacking me, he said, let's do it for a while. I want you to see what I'm doing, why I'm doing that, why I'm in this situation, why they're like they are, and I want you to decide who's the true apostle. Of course, comparing oneself to someone else always focuses our attention on ourselves and makes life all about how I measure up to somebody else and... Not necessarily with the Lord. And of course, that's the same the exact problem that these false prophets had. They were an exclusive little club. And they determined the criteria that someone in the ministry should have. And Paul didn't fit the bill. Their idea was that surely if God called you, then he's going to bless you with material blessings. Because after all, God's only concerned with us being happy, right? He's, it's all about us being happy. But Paul is showing that their whole approach is, is not... Not just the ministry, but to life in general is completely upside down. Now, go back, if you would, to chapter 11. And we see here in verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast 
a little too. And he says, bear with me for a moment. I'm going to defend myself and I'm going to boast. Now, because you know, he's using boasted in a good way. He's saying, okay, I'm going to compare. I'm going to tell you all about what's going on in my life as they've been using their life to somehow uh, make it look like they are true apostles. Let me look at those things that they're discrediting me about, my weak things, and let me see if I can't uh, come to a different conclusion. And the intriguing thing about this is that he's going to boast in something totally different than what these super apostles are boasted in. Look at verse 18. Since my boast according to the flesh, I will I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. So, so he says, let's boast about things in the flesh. That's what you're doing. He says, let me do that too. Then he goes, then, then go down to verse 21. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So he, so he says, you know, this sounds stupid, right? It sounds, uh, this sounds boastful. It sounds silly, vain. And you can kind of see that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm this, I'm that. He says, but you're forcing me to do this. So he, he kind of plays the game for a second. Are they servants of Christ? Verse 23, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, thirsting, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety in all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And there he turns it. He says, you know, I'm not ashamed of my meager lifestyle, of my seemingly inadequate ability to speak, and my I don't particularly look good. He says, because actually the very things that they say discredit me are the very things that display that I have been called of God and that I am used of God and that they can't be used of God. I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And so to put it in a nutshell, they boasted of all the ways God had blessed them because they have lived their lives in order or they, they have their lives in order. They have money, health, they're good looking, they're slick orators, supposedly impeccable credentials. And Paul says, OK, let's compare our lives. I am the very opposite of everything except in knowledge and credentials. But life is seemingly my life is is seemingly out of control. And I am weak in the flesh. And I don't have some of the outward gifts that they have. There is no reason for anyone to be jealous of my life, materially speaking. So he compares himself by putting forth the very weaknesses that they're making fun of and rejecting. Now, let's stop for a second. Are you starting to see how all this smells very similar to what's going on today? Why is it that when you turn on the... Many of the TV preachers 
and you see them dressed to the nines and they're surrounded by gold and glitter. And they keep telling us that we can ha- if, that if we have enough faith and if we're living right, that God will give us whatever we want, that we can have our best life now. Never mind then. You can have it all now. It sounds a lot like these false prophets. And it's because they've reduced, reduced the Christian life to one of the worst kinds of legalism. They have reduced God to someone who is there for us when we need him. And if we can muster up enough faith, if we can jump through the right hoops, if we can just obey like we ought to, that somehow that triggers something in God that makes him want to just give us whatever we want in the flesh. Which usually ends up being a happy, easy, problem-free life. The new car you want, the house you want, the spouse you want, whatever. These false prophets compare their successful lives with Paul's rather unfortunate circumstances and proclaim that God must be blessing them, which proves that they are faithful and that he must not be. His preaching can't be right because look what kind of mess his life's in. It's it's a health and wealth gospel. That's all it is. And of course, at the heart of their error, as I've already talked about, is that they were defining blessing as whatever pampered the flesh... Something that we, again, tend to want to do all the time. And when's the last time someone stood up at, I, supp- I assume you guys have an opportunity now and then for the church to get together and just have a testimony meeting, as it were, and, uh, you know, talk about how the Lord has blessed you in one way or another, how he's answered prayer, and so forth. When's the last time someone stood up in church and praised and thanked, thanked God for sickness, or poverty, or distress, or weakness? Now, I hope it happens. You know, it should happen. We should, after the fact, when we see how God has used that weakness, that humiliation, that humbling experience, that that affliction in my life, the praise the Lord. It was good for me. Usually we stand up and praise God because he's removed a problem. And we should. We should praise God for everything when he does, uh, no matter what he does in our life. But how often do we do it because he has sent the problem to begin with? You see. Like I said before, usually when we see someone with material goods, we say, my, hasn't God blessed him? Well, what about when you see someone who's lost their job that they were worshiping, that, that was controlling their life, and they had to sell their house and sell their car, but all of a sudden we see their relationship with his wife. Grows stronger, and he's he's gotten right with God, and he's become an active member in the church. And we say, well, it was a blessing that he lost that job. At some point, you begin to realize that. In fact, we should also be praising him for our problems when he takes away our cushy job or excellent health, and and it leads to a greater testimony. But we can only do that if we have embraced these things as blessings, and we let him have our way. In our response, in our attitude, when we, when we put Christ first. Now, I'm not trying to be glib here. You know, it's easy for us to, to sit in this comfortable church and to, to talk about suffering. And I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm not saying that we are to jump around in suffering, acting like it's all wonderful. You know, put, painting a smile on our face and saying, well, you know, I'm just happy all the day and then none of this matters. Not, we're not, not saying that at all. 
But we are to be patient and wait for the Lord to do his work in us, even in the most difficult things, so that we can come up on the other side praising him for what he has done in our lives. We cannot afford to assume that God blesses us only when he gives us good things that pamper the flesh and not understand that it's going to see, and we're going to see in a moment here, it's going to be primarily through suffering that God's going to give us the most important things. What we aren't to do in suffering is to withdraw into a cocoon of bitterness and depression as if somehow God has made a mistake and been unfair to us. And you know, if we're honest with ourselves, often that's what we do. That's what, you know, people would expect Paul to do, but Paul didn't do that. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm an apostle. I shouldn't have to live like this. No, he embraces it. Was not David thanking the Lord on the other side of adversity when he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes? Now, again, it wasn't that he suffered. The affliction might have been very severe. But when he got on the other side of it and he realized that he was the better for it, he was willing to praise the Lord, to thank him for weakness. And this is precisely what Paul is doing because he, first of all, knew that Jesus himself said that true followers were going to have to die daily and suffer because we're no better than our master. Paul said as much many times, actually, but let me just read you a couple places. Acts 14, 22, where he says, strengthening the souls of the disciple, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't like to. That's not a verse that you're going to hear, perhaps, on the TV. We don't have to think about that, but, but there it is. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, and, and I think this is speaking primarily in inheriting the kingdom of God in eternity, the normal way Christians are going to get that is going to be through demonstrating the glory of God in weakness and suffering. And of course, he goes on in Philippians 1.29, For it is, has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's, 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 that's a tough statement. That takes faith. Again, it's easy for us to say that now, right here. But we haven't lost our job because we wouldn't be politically correct. There are those that are starting to experience that. What are you going to do? Are we going to blame the Holy Spirit for pie-in-the-sky theology? Is he telling, is, James, is he telling us to pretend that everything is rosy when he says, count it all joy? No. This is solid, consistent biblical theology that is recognizing that nothing happens apart from God's will. And apart for, our, for an opportunity for us to serve, no matter how painful it is. The reason James says, count it all joy, is not because it feels good, and it doesn't hurt, but because you know that God sent that for a reason. I was listening to you know someone on the radio here this week saying that, well, when God, you know, I, I praise the Lord that God is able to help us through disaster. And that's certainly true. But but the even more deep thing you need to understand is that we can praise God, and He He can He's He's more powerful than those disasters because He sent them to start with. And that's missing in a lot of people's theology today. They, they don't, well, God, you know, why didn't you stop that? No, God sent that for a reason to serve his purposes. None of this would make sense if weakness and trials and dark days of calamity weren't blessings in disguise. Now, as we move into chapter 12, Paul shows us how he had to learn this lesson. 
Verse 1, we've, we've read, he's going to go on boasting. Now, the first five verses, they're, you know, interested in their own right. We're, that's not, but I don't want, you can get sidetracked on all that because that's not the point. We'll, we'll leave that for, you know, Reed or somebody to explain to you some other time. But verse 5 says, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. So he says, I'm going to boast in the very things you think are signs of God being upset with me and that I'm out of his will. And then in verse 6, he gets to the heart of the matter. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that one may think more of me, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and hears from me. Here he starts, he, he says, I used to think like these false prophets early on. I kept telling the Lord of this problem that, that I have that's hindering, hindering my ministry. And really, I meant to say he, he gets to it in verse 7. So to keep me from, you know, so he says, you know, I had these revelations and I had a conceit, a conceit problem. You know, you can understand that if you had been caught up into heaven and saw things that nobody else on earth had ever seen before. All right. And so the Lord afflicts him. And we don't know what that is. You know, there's a lot of speculation, but it doesn't really matter to, to humble him. Perhaps it was uh, eye sores that made him look ugly. You know, it was something that, that, that was just causing him a daily problems that he thought was hindering his ministry. So he says three times I asked the Lord to take care of this in verse eight, that it should leave me. I kept telling the Lord, look, I don't need this is hindering the ministry as if the Lord doesn't know what I need. I could be doing so much more if you made me stronger, healthier, if I had money, if I had it all together, I'd really be able to impress the world. Exactly what these false prophets are saying he needs. See, well, so he, he, he played that game. He was in that trap to, to some degree, obviously not to the point that these guys were, but. Maybe even thought that since he was an apostle, why should I deal with this? That's an easy trap for us to fall into. We want our church to have the latest and the greatest and to be big and modern because it looks like God's happy with us. It looks like God's blessing us. And we impress the world. And the world says, hey, they must have their act together. Let me go see what they've got going on. As if somehow that's going to enhance the gospel. Or perhaps we see our brother in the pew next to us who never seems to be able to make ends meet. Who doesn't dress as nice as we do and who seems to struggle with sin all the time. You know, after all, we've matured the point where we don't struggle with the sins that guy struggles with. He, he's just not quite up to our level yet. And on, and on it goes. We compare ourselves with others, always coming out on top or justifying ourselves when we don't. And we become obsessed with how to do better so that we can look the part. Because we think that to look weak is a bad testimony. To look poor. To not, to not have a good job. To don't, to don't have the things everybody else has. That, well, you know, I must not have God's blessings on me. And we think that's a bad testimony. And Paul says, no, you got it all backwards. That's not how it works. Paul says, I played that game until one day the Lord told me that this is how I am going to glorify myself and to be how I am glorified in my people. When he says there in verse eight, 
or excuse me, verse 9, but he said to me, his answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Your ugly face, your inability to speak clearly, your meager means, the bruises on your body, your, the, the outcast humility that you're suffering in society is exactly how you're demonstrating who I am. It's not about you. See, God says that people who have it all together have a harder time giving all the glory to God. People see their gifts and status and are impressed with what they're doing. But the fact is that when we see one who has little in material blessings and yet being faithful to the Lord, it's much easier, I think, to see God's hand in them than one who has everything going for them, going for them. And it's because it is easier to see that only the power of God keeps him full of joy and faithful for years when every day might be a struggle, you see. I mean, it's easy to be happy when life's not a, a struggle, when it's easy. Now, God, as we'll talk about in a moment, God has his will for some like that. That's, that's all well and good. But God says many of the strong and powerful are not chosen. It's the weak that are chosen for the most part. And there's a reason for that. I think about one of my own elders who's been in a wheelchair since the age of 10. He's in his 60s now. And yet it has caused him to have such a great testimony of of being faithful when every day is a struggle. And even now as he grows older and it becomes more and more of a struggle, he's such an encouragement to us in a way that I can never be unless I'm in a wheelchair. I, I just cannot because... It, the smile on my face doesn't mean quite as much to I mean, the smile on his face because of his condition. <clears throat> Paul came to see that it was to keep his pride in check that he had these humble means. And that's always for our good. And so we notice then how Paul is confronted with this in verses 8 through 10. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. This is Paul's reaction. He says, oh, oh, I get it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, there's no power in you super apostles because you think that it is in uh, in, in exalting yourself that somehow you are serving the Lord. He says, no, it's the exact opposite. So Paul says, Lord, how can I have an effective ministry if people feel sorry for me or if they don't respect me or if I'm constantly in pain or dealing with this uncomfortable thing on a daily basis? And I think that really this is the point of the book. And if a preacher tells you that that if you have enough faith or if you behave yourself, God will give you goodies to make your life comfortable. I would say, think again, turn them off, uh, get rid of them, leave, whatever. It's not the truth. The normative way that the Lord demonstrates his glory and power is by sustaining his children who are weak in this world and enabling them to be faithful to the end. Because when I see someone who struggles daily and yet is faithful to the Lord, is full of joy and continues and dies praising the Lord, I know the power of God has done that. There's nothing else that would explain it. The normative normative way... For a Christian to glorify God in this world is to have 
little in its material goods and to be faithful anyway. Not by having a lot of it and being faithful. Now I'm saying the normative way. The normal way. doesn't mean it's always like that. Not many noble are chosen. Not many of the powerful of this world are chosen. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that those who are blessed with material goods are out of his will or can't serve effectively. That's not what I'm saying. And we've got to think about this in, in materially blessed America. But if you think about it, if you think about for the last 2,000 years, what has been the norm for a Christian to be outcast, to be poor, to be shunned from society, to be banished, to be persecuted? It's still going on today, as we even in the headlines, when the, when the news runs out of anything else to cover, they'll cover the fact that, well, the Christians are being persecuted and put to death. That's just the normal way. And, of course, it's easy to lose sight of that in America where it doesn't, at least historically, hasn't cost us much. We've been able to thrive as Christians. But there's two words here in verses 9 and 10 that I think help us understand how to make this practical, even in the lives of those of us, perhaps, that don't suffer all that much. In verses 9 and 10, it says, he's two words here. First of all, he says, I will boast... All the more gladly in my weaknesses. In verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses. We need to learn to boast in our weakness and we need to learn to, to be content in our weakness in the way that Paul was. And obviously Paul used this word boast in a good connotation in this book. And so to, to make application here, I would say, let us quit looking at our weaknesses in the flesh and our lack of money or our lack of health or we don't have the flashy gift that so-and-so has so I can't be used of the Lord and so forth. And instead, look at them as opportunities to serve the Lord that is unique to me, that is the normal way that Christians are going to display His glory in humbling, weak things that, that demonstrate that the Lord means more to me than those things that I don't have. Maybe like Paul, we need to stop spending all of our time and energy praying for their removal and learn to embrace them and be triumphant in them. Now, that's something you don't hear every day. Because usually our prayer meetings is all about, Lord, take them away. Take this away from me. Help me in this situation. And that's all well and good. But what, what happened here with Paul? Paul's praying as a good, you know, a good prayer that he was, I'm sure, every day, Lord, take this away, Lord, take this away, and... The Lord says, okay, it's time to stop praying and start living. Start serving. I'm not taking this away. And I think sometimes you see somebody who, whose life is consumed with trying to get out of a problem, and, it, and they're so miserable because of it, and they spend so much time praying and, and, and trying to get, escape tribulation that they haven't embraced it and said, Lord, help me to be faithful while I have to go through this. This is an opportunity that I'm wasting away. <clears throat> Now, I realize it's a mouthful. And once we realize that weakness is the normal way God displays himself in us, we can stop running around, running from these things and embrace them for the glory of God. And I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for removal. But again, as we see here, clearly there's a time where we've got to at least keep the priorities straight. How many have become bitter and stagnant in their life because all they do is try to get out of a situation or they feel it's unfair as if somehow God has made a mistake in their case. And instead of making sure that they're being faithful while they're in it, they spend all their time mad at God because they're in it. 
So they pray for their removal so they can get back to doing what? Ignoring God to start with. You know, not being faithful to start with. So let's boast or glory or count it all joy when it hurts. And the things listed in verse 10, they hurt. This is real stuff. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. He's content with that. He's he's able to handle that. People insult me. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to blame God. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to go into depression. I'm going to say, well, the Lord wants me to demonstrate his grace by reacting in a godly way. Paul had learned a lesson. I'll stop being embarrassed by these things and stop and start looking at them as signs of and, and stop looking at as in them. Let me say this again. I will stop being embarrassed by these things and I will stop uh, looking at them as signs of God's displeasure. And see them as God preparing me for opportunities to serve and for my eternal reward. This isn't Paul being passed up for a promotion or contracting psoriasis or something like that, that we say it's such a big thing. This is people rejecting them, wanting him dead. And he says, it's it's okay. So he's kind of arguing from the greater to the lesser. If if Paul can be faithful and have the right attitude of that, we should be able to handle the things we got today in the same way. Whatever helps me serve the Lord and glorify him is good for for me, no matter how painful it might be. And this will bring contentment. And I would say only understanding this will allow for true contentment. And, I, and again, I see the people who are not content because they have not accepted where God has put them. And I'm not saying that it's always wrong to, if you can improve your situation, improve it. If you can do so in a godly way. But we've got to learn to accept the will of God. And to understand what's going, to, what's, what's going on here. We might chuckle at the 21-year-old who speaks about being content because we know that he's, well, he's, you know, darker days are coming. Let's see what happens in a few years when he's gone through life. But when we understand that God has a perfect plan for your life and it might involve weakness, then our whole outlook changes. We realize that no matter how things turn out, I have every opportunity to serve the Lord, to do his will, no matter what state I'm in. And that will affect our outlook and it will affect our prayers. Now, usually when I hear someone use the term, God has a perfect plan for your life, you know, it's not probably going to be good. They mean by it often that when we obey the Lord, he has a wonderful life waiting for you. You know, a wonderful spouse, wonderful children, health and wealth. It's all yours. If, if you just obey, if you just do what you should do, his plan for you. And Paul has learned differently. God's plan brought him suffering, but that was okay because his best life isn't now, it's later. He understood that. Let's just close by turning back to chapter 4. Here Paul makes one of his summary statements that, that puts all of life into perspective. Let's read verses 16 through 18 and with this we'll close. For we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, so that he, there's the weakness, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the first thing that kept Paul content was he said, I don't care if I'm weak and humbled and suffering because it's working in me a, a closer relationship with God, a greater spiritual service. 
Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So this, the next thing it's doing is that there's a, this, there's a direct line between my suffering and my spirituality and, bet- and between my uh, suffering and my doing without and my ability to have reward in eternity. So before we start living our lives for ease, we better think about it for a moment and say, you know what, if I'm going to be sending up anything besides wood, hay, and stubble, if I'm going to do something that's really going to honor the Lord for eternity, it's going to mean some suffering. It's going to mean some pain. It's going to mean me going through some weak things to demonstrate God's power. Then he sums up even that in verse 18. For as we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's, that's getting a look into Paul's mind. And that's how we've got to learn to think. If, if by faith God will enable us to think about life in an eternal way. So my point is not to make us feel guilty if the Lord gives us good things. And I want you to understand that. I'm not up here trying to preach poverty. There's a lot of people today who think that. That if you're poor, you know, you're all that matters. And everybody who's rich, of course, is, is the evil one and all. I'm not saying any of that. It is to realize that the Lord only gives us good things. See, I'm not talking about... I'm not defining good things as how much money you got in the bank or how healthy you are. No matter what situation you're in, the Lord only gives you good things. And they're the best opportunities to serve him will hurt like crazy. But let us be faithful to the Lord until the day he calls us home. Live with verse 17 that we just read in mind. The present afflictions, when they are handled in a godly way, are building for us up eternal rewards that can't be, Paul says, compared to anything in this life. And he knew because he had seen it. He had seen the revelation, whether in the body or the spirit. You know, he didn't know. He saw it. So take his word for it. This is God telling us this. True faith doesn't just say amen to this while we're sitting in the comfortable pew. In a church with people who uh, love us all around us. It'll say it in the day of calamity. In the day of weakness. In the day of humiliation. When the pain hurts. When the pain is unbearable. It'll say, His strength is made perfect in my weakness. May we be able to praise the Lord as sincerely in the dark, cold day of calamity as we do when we sit in the comfort of our homes or our churches so let me leave you with two apps, right? Well, not the apps you put on your phone, but applications, you know, the ones that you can use every day. You know, we, we, we download apps on your phone that are useful, right? You know. Let me give you a couple of things that I hope are useful if I just sum this up. First of all, may our outlook and our attitude be one of contentment and joy. In other words... There is no bad thing that can happen to me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Now, there'd be a lot of painful things that can happen to me. A lot of distressing things, difficult things. But all things work out to good to those who love our Lord. So, that that, that saves me from depression. It saves me from bitterness. I want us to have the outlook that Paul has here in life. And then secondly, this have a profound effect upon our prayers. Because our immediate 
reaction in, in, with problems is not for the removal of them. Lord, get rid of this thing. Our first prayer should be, Lord, help me to be faithful in this thing. And to, be, to learn to be content and to glorify you. And then, Lord, if I am willing to have you, if you remove this thing, to serve you well in it, then give it to me. To pray that, Lord, give me a better job just so that I can spend more money on myself and, and not serve the Lord any better is a, is a pray amiss. It's a selfish prayer. All right, what, what should motivate our praying is, Lord, help me to do right. Help me to serve you well. And if it means the removal of this thing well, and if it means the, that I keep this thing well, that's okay too. No, it's going to take grace. I can't do it by myself. It's going to take great grace, the great power of the Holy Spirit for me to do that. But that's what I see Paul doing here. He says, I'm going to boast. I'll boast. I'm going to boast in the weak things because that's how I serve the Lord. I don't know about you. That's how I serve the Lord, he says. And I think that that's how Christians... And I think it's become more and more apparent as you read the headlines that more and more this is going to have to be our mindset or we're going to have a difficult time of it. And we're going to start understanding what our brothers and sisters in other places are going through and have gone through. May the Lord give us grace to put him first in all things. Our God is sovereign. He sent, and he has told us that the normative way for a Christian is to be weak and humble and to suffer. And that, don't worry, the Lord's a righteous judge. He'll make it all right. We will never, he will never owe us anything. He will give us more than we ever deserve. Thank you, Nathan, for those important words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word delivered to us today and for the reminder that in our weakness, your strength is shown. Let's uh, seek contentment and joy in all the difficulties and remember that these things may be afflicting us. Father, you're so good, you're so kind to us, even when we can't see it, you've blessed us beyond measure. And beyond all things, you've blessed us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We praise you greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Praise God from whom all blessings